So 1 John, uh, we've been looking at this for a while. Uh, 1 John's kind of a challenging book, not so much because the verses are hard, as as because people tend to bring certain uh, commitments to the text, and then they'll they'll find what they want there, rather than what's really there if you just let it speak for itself. Um, John, in, in what I've characterized previously, is, is the hardest New Testament passage, in my, you know, my personal opinion. Chapter 3, the first 10 verses, uh, he, he makes this argument, and he says, you know, you really are something different when you become a Christian. It doesn't mean you always behave differently, although God wants us to, but there's something has changed on the inside where we we have this, this new birth, he calls it, and this new birth is the source of our ability to exhibit righteousness the way Jesus did. And then after verse 10, he begins talking about how that might look in our lives through exhibiting in our, in our lives uh, love the way Jesus expressed love. And, and we got through about verse uh, 17 last time. And, and, he, and it, we were kind of in the middle of a thought, so I, just, I, couldn't, I couldn't make the, the unit get completed. But in verse 17, he says, you know, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but with, withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? And, and I suggested that was kind of like what James does. You know, James says in his little epistle that we'll, we'll begin studying in a week in, in the Saturday mornings, that, um, you know, uh, be, a, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. A hearer only is somebody who, who would say with a straight face they believe what the Bible says, but you're not seeing it in their lives. And he gave a real easy example in James 2 that I presented, and it was the person who's a, a fellow Christian who more or less shows up in your life, and they are destitute of food and clothing. You have the means to do something, and you say, friend, I'm going to pray for you. And God's saying, that's not good enough. Okay? You do for them. That's why I brought them to you. Okay? I've, set it, I've set it up for you. And, and John is, is more or less saying the same thing. And so you get to this next verse that John says. He says in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or speech. He's, he's talking about the same thing James taught. You should pray for people. And it's a good thing to let people know that you're praying for them if you're able. Sometimes you're not able and you pray for them anyway. Um, but, but if you have the means to, to, uh, to meet some kind of, of need, which, which is, is, is frequently not even money, it's just maybe it's time, maybe it's being someone to listen. It could be a lot of things. If you have that means, instead of just doing the talking, he says it should be an action and in truth. Okay, in action and in truth. Now, action's pretty clear. Why does it have to be and in truth? What do you think? Well, we, we, we have all kinds of actions without truth, right, in a sense. But, but what, when, when Jesus loves people, I would suggest it's, it's action and truth, right? Be, because the, 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 this concept of love gets easily um, uh, twisted around, where love is just um, affirming whatever people want. I mean, you know, um, even, even being an enabler, enabler of someone who's abusive to others or an enabler of someone who... Uh, is, you know, if someone's an alcoholic and you're buying them liquor because they asked you to, you're not loving them just because that's what they wanted. And, and yet people, people can, can sometimes be manipulative and they, well, you're not acting like a Christian. You're not acting loving. Loving isn't always affirming people, but it also doesn't always look like a money issue. It may be. It may be providing for, for physical needs maybe giving your time, but it's going to be tethered to the truth of the Word of God. Love is, is, is not so much 
uh, in, this, in this context, not so much what you're thinking is what you're doing for others that's in their best interest. And, and for it to be in their best interest, it has to be tethered to the truth of, of God's word. So um, I hope that makes, makes some sense what he's, what he's seeing here. Um, he, he goes on, though, and, and you now he gets to a, what I think is a, a kind of a challenging verse. He says in verse 19, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. He's looking back. See, if, if, you know, to, to belong to the truth, he's not saying, here's how you'll know you're a Christian. Here's how you'll know that you're operating on the basis of God's word. You're allowing God's word, his truth, to come out in your life. You're putting feet and hands uh, to what he said. Here's how you'll know. It's, it's what he had just said before that. When, when you're meeting people's needs in some way, when, you're, you know, when it's within your means to do so, they're within your sphere of influence, and you're, you're doing. That's, that's a, a, an indication that, that you are, um, as he says here, that you're, you're, um, you're, you belong to the truth, you're, you know, you're, you're in the truth, that, that sort of thing. We'll know that we belong to the truth and reassure our hearts before him. He's very vague there, as he often is with his pronouns, that before Christ, before God, it doesn't really matter because he, he has a very Trinitarian view. And so, but, but why would I need to reassure my heart before him? Look at the next verse. Whenever our hearts condemn us, your heart's not the, the organ pumping the blood. It's that ticker in your mind that, that in, in, I, I expect that everybody's had this thought from time to time. You've, you've done something that really was good, but you may have wondered in your, in your mind, uh, what were my motives? Things like that. Okay? Or maybe you've wondered in your mind, am I adequate to even do what needs to be done here? Like, like I want to love, but do I even... Can I do this? Can I do what God wants of me? You can have these sort of internal doubts when our heart uh, condemns us, when it it questions us. It may question motives, abilities, whatever. Um, What's his solution? God is greater than our hearts. You know, uh, I think you have to look past some of those concerns. They're kind of natural. And to be sure, the Bible does call into question any kind of a doing for God or worshiping God that has bad, uh, bad motives. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, we don't ever leave behind our brokenness. And, and these kind of doubts can come in. People can sow doubts. We can wonder, am I really doing what's good? He says, stop, breathe. God is greater than, than, than those doubts. And why? He knows all things. If, you know, you may not feel adequate to the task, but he knows where your heart's at in the matter. And and he wants to see you take that step. He knows all things. Um, We have the ability uh, to always fall short when we're doing things apart from God. But with that right motive, with that that motive of of love and faithfulness, uh, God takes that that sort of what we viewed as a a bunt, and and he hits a grand slam. See, that's how it works. So just just see that. It's it's, it's an important part. I I mean, I, I can personally relate just having... Those doubts, from, you know, and, I, and I've come, I'm assuming I'm not the only one. You just kind of look at where you're at, what you're trying to do. You're trying to do a ministry, and you, you have some internal doubts uh, and from different things. God's greater than that. Um, dear friends, if our heart doesn't condemn us, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive whatever we ask from Him. I'll just stop there. Have you received whatever you ask from God? I still don't own a Corvette. I got a Corvair. Uh, some of you, 
The fact is you're laughing means that you're, you're over 21, okay? But I don't have a Corvette, uh, not for lack of asking. Okay, so what's going on here? Um, this is a, it's a powerful verse. He'll come back to this in, in, uh, in chapter 5, and he'll talk again about prayer. And I think I, I may have, um, pretty sure I referenced it in the, in the notes here. But um, there's a verse in chapter 5. Uh, verse 14 and 15, I'll read it. He says, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Maybe he didn't want me to have that car. <laughs> Maybe, right? And, and then he goes, and if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. But what's going on here? Um, th- think about this, and we'll look back in the, in the chapter 3 passage, but just understand, you know, it's helpful to look at those together because uh, there has crept in this idea that it's all about believing enough. And um, it doesn't matter what level of confidence I have in, in um, God giving me that Corvette. Uh, it turns out that God is not serving me. He's not like God in a box, and whenever I need something like that, I kind of open up the box and need that car now. Need that new job now. Right? Doesn't work that way. Um, and, 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 and what's happening here? What if your prayer life is meant to transform you? Right? What if it's meant to transform how we, how we think? So if you look at what he really says, he says, um, if our hearts don't condemn us, he has in mind what he just said in the prior verses, that, that we're, we're, doing, uh, we're doing this. We're doing love. We're, we're, we're showing this Christ love to people. He says, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. We'll receive what we ask from Him because we keep His commands and do what's pleasing in His sight. It's easy to stop before the because. Um, if I'm doing what's pleasing in the sight of God, it's not just the outward actions. Um, this is a picture of a person being transformed. God leads us largely by our desires. He leads us by giving uh, specific indications in this Bible. But as, as you're in this transforming process, you're renewing the mind. A renewed mind prays differently. Okay? And, and one of the things I had done, and uh, was epic fell, was to print a list of all of Paul's prayers on the back of this. Not to write out the text, but just to write the verses. Um, I, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, about this issue of, of learning how to pray better. I'm just suggesting a step one. There are a couple of great prayers in the Bible. All the ones by Paul are great prayers. Contrast them with how you usually... We tend, to, we tend to learn how to pray from hearing others pray. Contrast it with what you usually hear. Paul prays differently. He prays for different things. He prays in a different way. Eloquence and all that has nothing to do with a good prayer. God is not grading your grammar when you pray. Say, Man, that's, he's the next Shakespeare, right, of, of prayer. No, but, but he hears your words... But look at what Paul's praying for. Think about prayers, good prayers in the Bible. Think about uh, the first chapter of Nehemiah when he prays. Like they had these great prayers in the Bible. Many of the Psalms are David. Uh, the Psalms are prayers. And his prayers, uh, especially in those first 42 Psalms, they, 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 they take us on a, on a bit of a life journey with him because he's a man on the run, a man in distress. And so the prayers that come out of his heart are, um, are helpful for, for those in trials. I'm just saying, uh, and so a good place to start, though, is really looking at Paul's prayers and how frequently uh, he prays for spiritual matters, people's growth, their attitude of gratitude, those kinds of things. He rarely prays for his own physical needs, although he acknowledges that God always meets his, his needs. 
So it's a different way of thinking, and, and it gets you away from uh, sort of some of the stuff that's been, been out there for a while that you ought to pray for the, the Corvette with an expectation you'll get it, okay? Uh, and and that, that kind of thinking, you won't see Paul. He doesn't pray for a single automobile in there. He don't. Okay? He doesn't even pray for a horse and chariot. I mean, I'm just telling you, think, think about that. So anyway, if you, if you download it, you'll see it on the back, and it's just a short list of verses. But there's, there's at least a couple, more than a couple dozen probably. Some of his prayers are just a sentence. He'll say, you know, I don't cease to pray about this. Some are a little longer, uh, but, they're, but they're helpful. And, and what I'm suggesting is that, that as we're in this process of of keeping his commands, and he has in mind especially this expressing love for other people, not in, in words, he just told us that, but in actions. If you're doing that because that's important to you, because you know you honor and please God by that, your prayers are just going to be different. You're probably going to pray about their needs before yours. See, it's going to change your whole, uh, your whole perspective. So uh, he says, now this is the command uh, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he commanded us. This is the first time he uses in the same uh, verse, uh, love and faith. This is the command. Then this verse 23, I think it's kind of the culmination of what he's been saying since uh, the beginning of the chapter. This is the command. Like, What's the command? Believe in, and this is packed, the name. We have to think about what the name is. His son. As soon as you're told that Jesus is the son of God, every Jewish reader reads He's divine. I don't mean special like, a, like the Jehovah's Witness special. He's God. He's deity. He's the very Son of God. He has to have the exact same attributes as the Father. He is omniscient. All those things. To say He's the Son is to, to indicate His deity. Uh, Jesus is the earthly name He was, was given, right? They were told to call Him that because it, the Word is not an uncommon name, but it means that God saves. And then it says Christ, that's Christos in the Greek, we just transliterate it, but it would be from the, the, the Hebrew concept or word Messiah. This indicates all the work he did on a Roman cross and his resurrection, all those things that were prophesied in the Old Testament. This is a packed verse. This doesn't say, well, I, you know, I believe in Jesus. You have to be a fool not to believe in Jesus from the standpoint of the evidence. As historical figures go, there's more evidence for his existence than anybody else. But, but that's not the issue. These people, remember there's false teachers in the background, he's going to talk about them in a minute. They do not confess. Confess is, is the, um, it, it's a compound word, homo uh, legao, I think is how it is. It's, it's, it's to speak the same thing, to, to come into agreement. Um, it, so it's, it's those who would agree, who would confess, he, he says, he's, he's, I'm sorry, I'm reading a different verse. Hold on, hold on. I, I'm sorry, I pre- apologize for that. I skipped a verse. I'll get there in a second. We'll come to the home of the go. So, um, but I would say that the false teachers are going to do exactly the opposite was going to be my point. They're not going to agree uh, it, with the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this word name uh, is, is not the word. There's not this concept that, that the word Jesus has some mystical power associated with it. Um, there's a... Um, a church in Revelation, I'm probably going to go find it now. It's one of the ones in chapter 2 and 3 where he writes to them. And, uh, but I'll paraphrase what he, what he says, and then possibly I can find it. But he says, um, you have a name. He says to this church, you have a name. We have a name, and in, in, uh, you know, when we put a sign out front, it says Chapel Hill Bible Fellowship. And those words should mean something, especially... Um, the words Bible and fellowship should mean something. 
But our name is going to be how this community perceives us based on what we do. That's our name. It's in, in, in Jesus's name is, is his his person, his works, his accomplishments. It's it's not the word Jesus, which was an extraordinarily common name. OK. And today there's lots of people named Jesus. Uh, there's even somebody at uh, my wife's school that has the name Messiah. Uh, OK. But see, the name doesn't mean anything. The name in this sense is, is your reputation. And, and when, when, when the writer of Revelation, John, and, and I'm forgetting which church, but the point is he says you know, to this church, you have a name, and guess what? Your name matters. Uh, people will say, well, I don't care what people think of me. You ought to. If they think you're a jerk because you're obnoxious, right? That's not persecution. You're getting what you have coming to you, right? But if you have a reputation that, that, uh, of, of being dishonest, that, that is a concern, right? And, and I'm just saying, when he says name, just think about this. This is, you know, he, he's incorporating the very concept of who Jesus is and, and what he did. It's not um, the word. And so we don't kind of, you know, um, you know, I can pray the word Jesus and there's, you know, this, you hear this kind of power in the name. Maybe in some sense, but just we need to understand what name means. I hope that makes. Is there a question or a thought about that? I mean, is that making some sense? The name of Jesus isn't just the single word in Greek, Jesus. Okay, it is. It is the the accomplishments, the character, the attributes of this person, the one who said, "I'm God." Before Abraham was born, I am. Okay? The, the letter you're it's it's chapter three. The, the, ah. So it's like Revelation 3, 1, church at Sardis. And uh, he says, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's, of course, it's Jesus. I know your works. And look how it says it. You have a reputation. The King James will say you have a name. Um, and and um, a wonderful sermon was preached years ago by my, my old pastor, and it was, you have a name. And I, it's vivid in my mind, even just, and it's this verse, you have a name. And of course, that was a, a step into, you know, the church we were at. What is our name? Right? Not the words on the sign. What is our name? A question we should all ask. This church had a name for being alive, but you were dead. Oh, wow. The reality was different than the reputation. Yeah, that happens. For Jesus, um, sometimes the reputation was being a blasphemer, but the reality was what he says here. Um, he was the Son of God, and he was the Christ. Powerful statement. So he says, um, this is the command, right? That we believe. Okay, Believe is, is a verb, but in, in, in English we kind of have a word, a noun for believing that we call faith. And we have a verb, believing, okay? But in Greek, they have, they're essentially the same word. You change the ending, you get a verb or a noun. So um, you have this idea of, of believing, and we might say faithing, if you could you know, use the English concept. And sometimes people think that's different, right? I believe George Washington was the first president, but I have faith, and that's different. Now, I, I'm not saying there's not maybe a, like a trust component, something personal about this decision. We make a decision for Christ. But just understand when you say we believe, um, that, that's the verb for, for, you might say, we have faith, that we, you know, that kind of uh, concept here. Um, you're putting your faith in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again. 
And, and he says if you, the, the command is to do that and to love one another. And that's looking back at all this stuff about love. Um, the one who keeps his commands remains in him or abides in him. That's what this whole book's about. It's what it looks like to, to have this abiding relationship. It's not just you're a Christian, but it's this closer, intimate relationship. And in, in, in a, a good litmus for that is both faith and love. Faith in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and, and doing these acts of, of love is a good indication that you're experiencing what it is to be in a close fellowship, an abiding relationship with God. And then he adds one wrinkle that's totally new in this book. Uh, I mean, some reference before, but really uh, he's very specific now. He says, the one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. Is that a lot of pronouns? We're in God and God's in us. Okay. But how would you know? Because it's easy to assume that so. And he, and he adds a wrinkle that may not be a help for a lot of us, but it's intended to be a help for us. He says, this is how you'll know you're in God and God's in you. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. He says, the way we know that he remains or abides, he dwells in us, is from the spirit he's given us. Now, now he brings in the third person of, of the, the Trinity or the Godhead, as we sometimes say. It's not just Jesus and, and the Father. Now he's got the role of the Holy Spirit here, and he's going to talk about this for a bit. And, and, and the piece I want to talk about today is, you know, the Spirit is, is going to be a spirit of truth, but there's also out there a spirit of deception. There are people who aren't on our side. They would like to, to tear down our faith by introducing bad ideas. And, and this confession he just talked about, believing in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, they don't. And, and it kind of becomes a litmus, okay? Uh, so when you look at the next verse, he says, My dear friends, don't believe every spirit. He, he's trying to explain, he's going to try to build out for us some comprehension of this idea that we know we have an abiding relationship because the spirit of God that he's given us. And he says, but you know, you need to test the, the, you know, the spirits. Um, I want to read a, a couple of verses. They're, they're noted um, in, in the handout, I think way down at... Uh, uh, under number five, uh, I'm going to note First uh, First Timothy four one, and I've got this. I've got them written down in case you want to go look at them later. But First Timothy four one, uh, this matter of testing the spirit. So you get a sense for what that means, because there's the Holy Spirit who is 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 what he's referred to earlier in the book as an anointing we have from God to help us comprehend things of the Scripture. Now you're not going to understand things you've never read. But those who have their mind in the Scripture and they're thinking about the Scriptures, they're trying to, to, to do uh, what God's asked, um, you know, there's some help there that's critical in the role of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only Spirit at work. Okay? And the Holy Spirit is, is God, but there are other spirits okay, with a little s. So what does he say in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1? He says, now the Spirit, my translation puts it in a capital S, the, the Greek doesn't do that, but it's... it's the, 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 the translators recognize that, that this is referring to the Holy Spirit. Um, and the fact that the Spirit especially says something means the Spirit's not a, a force, okay? It's not uh, Jedi Knight stuff. The Spirit is a person. When we talk about the Trinity, uh, you know, uh, th- three in one, that, that God, the, the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all God, three persons in, in one. And uh, otherwise, He couldn't speak, He couldn't give direction. 
the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, that's when we live today, uh, some will depart from the faith. Now, the faith isn't having faith in something. Okay, It's the faith. It's the, the, the doctrine the apostles delivered. It was the things Jesus taught. It's the faith. It's a, it's a noun here. Um, they're going to depart from it. What are they going to do? They're going to pay attention to deceitful, there it is, spirits. They're very ones that John is warning about. John writes very late. Paul, Paul's already probably passed away, um, you know, a, a couple of decades before uh, John writes. But this is a real issue. Um, think about where he's taking us. I thought it was just, um, you know, the, those guys on the, on the TV that, that'll pray for me and, and guarantee results if I send them a thousand bucks. By the way, I'll pray for you for a thousand bucks. Yeah. No, no problem, right? Probably some of y'all would pray for me for a thousand bucks too. Might even guarantee the results. Um, I, I, thought it, I thought it was just that, that, that Kenneth Copeland wanted more money or whoever. You pick in the, the name, you know, people complaining that, that they don't have enough money to, to, to buy another private jet and stuff. We have a preacher in Houston that makes $55 million a year as a salary. Okay, and, 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 and you can see those people and think that's bad, but you, you miss something. When you get false stuff that he's talking about here for in Timothy and in John, um, he's looking beyond the mouthpiece. Uh, elsewhere, Paul would write that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. And people read that and think like the you know, angel with the little white wings and the feathers. He's not a chicken. Uh, and neither are angels. I don't know why they're drawn that way, but you buy them at the store. That's not what he's talking about. An angel's a messenger. Satan transforms himself as a messenger of light, like a pastor. Okay? That's what, I'm, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about somebody coming into the church who, who, who is offering themselves as a messenger of the truth of God, and they're not. And he goes further, and it's what John's saying. There are demons behind this. And that's the part. And, and, and John spent a lot of time in chapter 3 saying, you know, when you do things, it's going to either be sourced in God or sourced in the devil. He doesn't think there's a gray area. So Paul warns here, these people are going to pay attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They feel no guilt at doing what uh, they know is completely opposite of Scripture. They're very comfortable with it. But understand, it goes beyond the, um, the speakers, the people maybe on TV that, that should be easy to see through because they're always asking for money, something that you never hear from the pulpit in this church. People always telling you you need to give more money and that's some connection to your prayer and all that stuff. Um, we need to have discernment, but we need to understand that behind this are demons who are influencing people in what they teach, even people um, who may be Christians, even people who, uh, you know, are, are, are position themselves as, as uh, church leaders in different things and different, different spheres. Um, John 12, 31, I'll back up. I want to pick up a couple of these verses just to get the sense for this. I think that, you know, you could be at one extreme where you're worried about the devil lurking behind every corner, but you could be at another extreme where you don't recognize how pervasive the deception is today. Um, if I wanted to fool a lot of people, I wouldn't create a news network to do it. I would own all the news networks, but convince them that they're different. You understand? I hope that makes some sense. Satan has had a long time. 
he got uh, a, a real shaming, as it were, on Resurrection Sunday that we'll be celebrating in a few weeks. But he's had 2,000 years of, of, after that of manipulating people and thinking he can thwart the plans of God, and he's pretty good at it. What if Satan is, is the influence behind the Democratic and Republican platforms? That's what I would do if I were him and I wanted to fool the people. I would make us believe there's a real choice out there. I'm just saying, think about that. Um, the deception runs deep. Jesus says in John um, 12:31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's, he, you know, who's the ruler of this world he's viewing? He's, he's looking at Satan as the ruler of this world. That's a pretty strong statement. I want to read something from um, uh, another verse. I've got listed here again. It's notes under number 5. But uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Powerful, powerful verse. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, and then I'll just have one other. Uh, I'm reading these to think about the idea that we should not... You know, you can overemphasize this stuff, but you can also pretend it's not there. And the writers of the New Testament were very aware, as Peter would say in his first epistle, that Satan is, is walking about as a roaring lion. Uh, he has tremendous power, and, and his, his motif is deception. Okay? The spirit of the Antichrist, the deception. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, uh, those who are uh, rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ... The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. This world is full of deceptions designed to blind the minds of, of people who, who are outside of Christ uh, to seeing the gospel. Now, there are those who say, well, you know, lost people are born and they, they don't have any ability to believe the scripture and all that. Well, if that were true, Satan wouldn't waste so much time blinding their minds, right? If they were born unable to believe, you wouldn't need this verse. It's the fact that believers, uh, and unbelievers rather, have the ability to respond in faith to the gospel, not to save themselves, respond in faith, that Satan's out there distorting it with, with all kinds of ideas. See, it says he blinds their minds. Um, this, uh, the, the way the world thinks is, is not a biblical way, but it's designed with a purpose. And we, we see a lot of symptoms, we focus on the symptoms. The purpose is what he said here. That is the only purpose that really matters at the end of the day. He's going to keep uh, the lost lost and the saved from doing their job. That's what he wants to do. Well, the last one is, is at Ephesians 2.2. 2. If you just go uh, north a little bit in your Bible, you'll find Galatians and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, I'll read the first verse. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of air, and, not the spirit that worked in the past, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Okay? So just you know, the idea there is just this, this idea of, of testing the spirits. Where does the doctrine, where does the teaching come from? So with that, that in mind, and, and with this idea that, that Satan and demons are having a profound influence on our world, um, they are generally unseen in, in themselves, they're spirit beings, but we see the results and, 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 and he's, uh, the scriptures say that the world is held under the sway of Satan. That's a powerful passage. That doesn't mean he's got the corner of it kind of pulling here and there. If we're under the sway of the evil one, 
That's a big deal. So, so with that in mind, think about the, these, these verses. First uh, John 4, he says, Dear friends, don't believe every spirit. Um, you know, when you're reading the book of Acts and you get to uh, one of the churches Paul went to, it was the church in a town called Berea. Uh, the King James uses the word noble. They were more noble than those at Thessalonica because why? They basically opened up their Old Testament to make sure the things Paul was saying was what the, the Bible actually said there. Uh, that's, not, that's not being critical of Paul. That's doing what, what we should do. Like, like, is this really what the Scripture says? Because when you're testing the spirits, they could hit a softball for you. That's pretty easy. But a lot of times it's a bit more subtle. And, and so we have to test them in the right way. And what I, what I had put on the back of this that didn't get printed was just some, some basically some Bible study tips, some things about how to interpret the Scripture in general and any kind of pitfalls not to fall in. But if I want to test the spirits, um, I'm going to have my head in the Bible. And he's going to talk about that in a minute. He's going to be real specific. He says, if they're not teaching what the apostles are teaching, you don't need to listen. Like that's basically, I'm boiling it down my Texas paraphrase. Test the spirits to see if they're from God. Why? They may not be. They may not be. Uh, even if they're in a church or on a Christian radio or in a book you've read, um, I, a lot of times people will hand me books and they say, will you read this and, and tell me if it's scriptural? No. Um, but because if you're, you know, I'm happy to entertain a specific question, but, um, you know, I, I don't know how many books I read in a year. I'm, I'm well over 50, but I'm not adding to it just to make sure that when you're reading things outside the Bible, you're not, you know, that they're good. I mean, if you're unsure, then read more Bible, I guess, is what I'm thinking in my mind. I mean, you get what I'm saying? I mean, just uh, there's a lot of good stuff in books, and, and I'm a, I would really promote people. You, you read, read history, read books about the Bible, read this stuff. Um, but you got to read with a really a, a discerning a discerning eye because there's some stuff. Not all that glitters is gold. There's some stuff packaged in a way that, that, that makes it seem like it's something it's not. And the worst thing people do when they get hold of false doctrine is they tell as many other people about it as they can. Okay, so be warned of that. He says, test the spirits to see if they're from God. The idea is that the spirit, the Holy Spirit within you, is going to be a help in your doing this, so that you can. Uh, both grasp the scriptures you read and see their implications, um, there should be, uh, often at a subjective level, a, a discomfort when you hear something that is contrary to God's word. You need to think about that. And I'm, I'm getting you know, beyond, when I, when, when I think of the, the Holy Spirit's role, is, is sometimes I hear something, I've never heard it before, and, and, there's, and it's not just because I've never heard it that there's a problem. Something doesn't set easy. And I spend some time reflecting on it, and I go to Scripture. And, and I think there's a role of, of the Holy Spirit doing what He does to help us see the spirits with a little less for what they are. Uh, he says, this is how you know the Spirit of God. This is how you know when it's the real thing. Uh, Every spirit, little s, that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is from God. Now, he's got some specific ideas of people are, are coming and teaching something at that time. But you think about all the cults, those things that are, they, they kind of want to overlap Christianity a bit. They'll read the Bible, but they either have their own unique translation or, or you have the Bible plus something else. Okay? That includes the Quran. It has things about Jesus, but you're reading, getting to read something else. Every one of them has one thing in common. They don't pass this test. Okay? Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, um, uh, Tom Cruise, all right? uh, you know, Christian Science. Right? They don't pass this test. They all don't pass this test. It's not that hard. He says, you know, you're, you're going to know the Spirit of God because every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ 
He's the Messiah, the chosen, selected one of God to go on a Roman cross and die for your sins. There's a whole lot packed in that. Christ is not his last name. When he got mail, you know, offering credit cards and stuff, it didn't say Mr. Christ, right? Uh, right? Because, because he's Jesus the Messiah. He's come in the flesh. There was this view that was certainly in full swing within, within just a few decades of Paul's writing, if not sooner, that, um, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He, uh, he was either just some, some spirit, and he may have inhabited a, a human for a while and then left, uh, and then that human uh, died on a Roman cross, but not really Jesus, right? Uh, it's, it's called Gnosticism. That may be what's behind this. Um, but, but the very idea that God became flesh and walked on this planet is contrary to Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Tom Cruise, you know, Christian science, and a host of other things out there. So we're not getting at the fact that, you know, you know I, I, I'm, I'm a, a premillennial. I think there's going to be a real kingdom that lasts forever. Christ is going to return. He's going to make a kingdom that lasts forever. There are a lot of folks who disagree with that. They think the kingdom's happening now. And, and I'm not talking about those people as being these false teachers. Okay? Uh, they have a more what was called a millennial view. And that's fine. And, and they're Christians and they're serving the Lord. We disagree about that. This is something different. This is going right at the heart of the Christianity. If Jesus Christ um, has not come in the flesh and, and he was sent from God, we shouldn't be here. Okay? I could have a fishing pole in my hand right now. Be out on the lake. Right? Because uh, Paul said it. 1 Corinthians 15. If he isn't raised, then our faith is in vain. Right? Uh, it, it, you know, and so when you strike at the heart of who Jesus is, that he is God's son in the flesh, who did the work as, as the Christ, who said on that cross, it is finished, then you have nothing. And you can basically take all the attacks of the devil. He has to attack that. Because he can teach a lot of false things. But if his false teaching still teaches the truth about Christ, he's not going to accomplish his goal. It's that simple. So whatever emanates from Satan is a teaching has to attack this. And so this becomes the test. And I mean, just walk, going into work on um, uh, Friday, I, you know, I, I think it was Friday. It was the last day I went to work last week. You know, I'm, I'm pulling into my garage and, and there's this nice tower uh, of, 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 of books and free Bible studies, says JW at the top. This is the only question I have for them. It's a question I ask when they knock on my door. I'm not trying to be mean to people. And I'm not saying they're conscious of what they're doing, that they know that they're preaching demonic doctrines. But the reality is that your sincerity doesn't make what you believe true. It never has. What makes what you believe true when it comes to things about Jesus, the fact that it's written in this book, by the Holy Spirit with a capital S. So he goes on. He says, God's love was revealed. Oh, hold on, wrong verse. Uh, this is how you know the Spirit of God. Uh, the, every spirit, okay, so it's a human being teaching a doctrine, but if it's true, it's either going to come from the Holy Spirit and confess Jesus, or it's going to come from another spirit and not confess Jesus, so you test it. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Well, they're, they're sincere. You know, I hear that a lot about, about clearly false teaching. That, well, they say some good things, if they don't pass this test, nothing else matters. I mean, we need to not be so, you know, have some conviction about this. Again, and I wanted to be clear, there's lots of people who, who are good Christians serving God who disagree with me on lots of things. It, it's a remote possibility. I'm the one that's wrong. 
And it doesn't mean either one of us, though, aren't Christians who are sincerely trying to honor the Lord. See, there's a difference. So I'm not getting at people that we would disagree about some things. Um, uh, we're getting at people who undermine Christianity altogether. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Wow. What is the spirit of Antichrist? The spirit of deception. It's been around the world forever, and it's been in, in these what he calls these last days. It's ratcheting up. There's going to come a time, is what we read from Paul earlier, when, when it seems that even people within churches are going to be, be going over toward these doctrines of demons. Um, I wonder how they'll defend it. I'll tell you how. I read a book on uh, sexuality written by uh, Christians, to be from a Christian world. It's a very good book in a lot of ways. But where they came when they had to deal with the thorny issues that we're dealing with today in, in, in our culture, they said, everybody agrees what the Bible says, but that's not the real point. It's what it says to us today. That's the opposite of the truth. It's one of the reasons I put the thing on the back that didn't print. The issue is what the author's intended meaning was to the audience at the time, because God said it. It is what happened on Mount Sinai when the very finger of God wrote in the stones. And you don't say, well, it's not really what God wrote in the stones with his finger. It's what he has to say today. That's what progressives do with the Constitution. It's why we get constitutional rights that aren't there. God is not playing that game. And, and uh, what we're to do is make application. But we need to seek the principles and what God said. And now we have a world that has things that weren't even around. I mean, the, the, the Internet wasn't around, but we have the principles and we, we apply it. So, so he says, you know, this is the spirit of Antichrist. which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. A spirit that is contrary to Christ. You're from God, little children, and you've conquered them. You've conquered these uh, bad spirits because the one who is in you, the Holy Spirit, who he's talking about now, the Holy Spirit is greater than those who are in the world. The Holy Spirit is the one that the Christian is going to be enabled to, 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 to be able to deal with some of this. And you can't rely on, well, you know, God's going to help me, but I, I, I don't know anything about this book. But the person that has their head in the book, the Spirit's going to help you see the implications, and it's going to help you connect that, wait a second, this doesn't match with this, and especially what he said here. Well, therefore, what they say is from the world. He says, they are from the world. Uh, I might say they are worldly or they are secular. Secularism is a religion, okay? And it is the one world religion that, that the world is moving toward in this day. And the, the, the uh, false teachings emanate from it. He says, don't be, and you've heard the, the expression of the pastor preaching to the choir. Um, in the terms of secularism, the pastor is preaching to the choir, right? There are these false teachers all around, and they're preaching what the world wants to hear. In that sense, preaching to the choir. But, but uh, uh, because that's what they expect. They're from the world, right? Therefore, they say what's in the world, and the world listens to them. We shouldn't be shocked that you hear completely absurd things like the ability of men both to get pregnant and have babies. Right? Um, you know, you hear these absurd things, you say, how can people think, like, especially people who are waving a science wand around, what do you say they're going to do? The world listens to them. Okay? It's going in incremental steps, but uh, we're from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Now he's talking about the apostles, and this is where we'll be closing, but just understand what he's saying. Paul says we, I think talking of him, the apostles that have come before him, you know, there may be some still living, but uh, he says we're from God. Right? What, we're, what we have to teach is sourced from God. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. He says, God listens, he says those who know God listen to us, 
and those who are not from God don't listen to us. What you will find is, is that when you have these false doctrines that always undermine the, the name of Christ, they also have to distance themselves in some way from this. You can read, and you can do it in a subtle way. You can say, here's a translation that's true to the word. All those other translations are wrong. Okay? Uh, and so you need this translation. You need the New World Translation uh, so you can get the truth. Or they say, well, this is a good book, but you need another book in addition. Right? Uh, there's subtle ways. Or, uh, you know, or people will say, yes, this is all true. And, and they give you outlandish interpretations that um, it seems like they're an island of their own. Okay? They become the final arbiter of truth. That's the most subtle to deal with. Just understand, John says those who are from God are going to teach consistent with apostolic doctrine. If they don't, they're from the devil. And we'll, we'll end there, but I hope that makes some...